Yo, 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 everybody, it's Stretch Armstrong. And my name is Bobito Garcia, aka Cool Bob Love. If you love this podcast you are listening to, you should check out our new show, What's Good with Stretch and Bobito. This is not your average interview show. We're going to be telling stories that you're not going to hear anywhere else. Find it on Apple Podcasts, the NPR One app, or however you find your podcast. It's What's Good. Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week on the show, one of the hosts of NPR's All Things Considered, Audie Cornish, and correspondent for NPR's Planet Money team, Elsa Chang. All right, let's start the show. Hey, y'all. <laughs> Sam Sanders here. It's been a minute. Aunt Betty, shout out, as always. So there's no theme music for this show. Each week, I choose a different song. I'll explain this one in a second. Adi, Elsa, I'm sure you know what this song is. So. Yeah, this is uh, a nice pick for our episode. <laughs> right? Elliot, I'll take uh, it. Yeah. There's a whole backstory for this. Um, unfortunately, Adi, Elsa, I can't see you guys dancing right now because I'm not oh, in D.C. It's not as good as Missy. That's all you need to know. <laughs> I'm actually in my hometown public radio station, KSTX, in San Antonio, Texas. I've been here all week uh, for some family stuff, but we're still taping this show. Uh, Audie Cornish from ATC, thanks for being there in D.C. And Elsa Chang from Planet Money, thanks for being there in D.C. It's awesome to be here. So this track, it's called The Rain by Missy Elliott. It's featured prominently uh, in a great list that came out this week. NPR Music, this wonderful list of the 150 greatest albums made by women. This is a lead single from Missy's album, Super Duper Fly, her first solo release. That album was ranked number five on that list from NPR. Yep. Uh, the list is great. The album's great. Missy, we love you. Beep, beep. Who got the keys to the Jeep? I love this song. Remember this video? Of course. I helped do some of the voting for this list. So oh, really? I'm kind really? of obsessed. <laughs> yeah. And the whole list was prepared by women exclusively, right? Exactly. I think there were upwards of 50 of us. Because I didn't know this thing was happening until it published. It was a little. I saw it and I was like, oh, know, okay. Yeah, this didn't make it. it to the, the boys' room. But I think that was, <laughs> uh, you know, my vote was to put out the list without noting that it was all women. And just see uh, what people would see, <laughs> which is which is what I think basically most men at like mainstream music publications do. They just say this is the greatest, exactly. and there's like a handful. You know, dudes. there's women on it. Exactly. I want all the youngins listening right now who might not have been around when this video was such a big thing. Go watch the video now, Missy Elliott's The Rain. The whole album's great, Super Duper Fly. She's number five on the NPR list. Number four is Aretha Franklin for her album, I've Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You. Mm. Number three is Nina Simone for her album, I Put a Spell on You. Number two, Lauren Hill, The Miseducation of Lauren Hill. And number one, Joni Mitchell's Blue. We should note that I think it starts from like 1964, sometime in the 60s. Gotcha. So for those of you who, like me, were like, where's Billie Holiday? You know, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's because it started a lot later. Gotcha. Go check it out and then come back and argue with us. Exactly. <laughs> Shout out to Ann Powers and her NPR music squad for making this wonderful, wonderful thing. And Missy, thank you. All right, so this is the weekly wrap. We're going to talk about the news and the culture and everything that happened this week. Lots to talk about this week. Crazy week in politics, healthcare, transgender people in the military, millennials and beer, a really interesting Supreme Court case all about race. And of course, we'll end the show as we always do, hearing from our listeners, telling us the best things that happened to them all week. But first, let's start this week as we do every week. I want my panel of distinguished, wonderful guests to describe their week of news in three words. Which of you will go first? Um, I'll go first after go that introduction. Uh, so my three words are paranoid, schizophrenic, <laughs> and paranoic. Uh, okay, is paranoia the real word? I don't know if it is. It's real now. Apparently. It's real talk is what it is. I'm going to use it. Yeah. Uh, and the, these are quotes from uh, Ryan Lizza of The New Yorker, his write-up of a conversation he had with the incoming communications director for the White House, Anthony Scaramucci. Uh, the Mooch. Uh, the Mooch, who does at one point in the Love conversation it. refer to himself as the Mooch oh, yeah. the third person. Oh, yeah, he owns it. Uh, and honestly, I had to pick those three words because most of the rest of the three words are not safe for work or probably FCC compliant. Uh-huh. 
And uh-huh. it's basically this conversation he has with a reporter just before he goes and makes this uh, controversial tweet where he implies that Ryan Priebus, the chief of staff to Donald Trump, is a high-level leaker of information. But he says that he says that Priebus leaked his financial disclosure form. Okay, so right. but that's public. Not tr- exactly. this is, so here's where it goes beyond palace intrigue to my mind, is this actually lays bare a lot of the things about this White House that are really interesting, and one of which is this idea of leaking. In the case of Scaramucci, his financial disclosure forms were uh, publicly available, and a reporter went to a federal department and asked for them. So it was not a leak, uh, but it's come to be a term for any information we don't want to get out there. <laughs> um, and, and which has real kind of connotations for reporting and journalism and, and the idea of kind of labeling people as being renegade or uh, doing something illegal when in fact they are not. And then there's just, you know, the new sheriff aspect of it, of the mooch, so to speak, bringing in a lot of Trump's New York brashness. Um, obviously, he wouldn't make this phone call and say the things he said if he didn't think he had the confidence of the president in doing it and has not seemed yeah. to suffer any kind of punishment, quote unquote, as a result, even though in the article he's dissing Steve Bannon, he's dissing Reince Priebus. And he's saying he'll fire his whole staff. Yeah, <laughs> which was one of the funnier parts of it where he's like, oh, if, if you do such and such a thing, reporter, I'll fire everyone. And it's like, and? <laughs> I'll still be here. You know what I mean? Like, like, I don't see how that's a threat. And who's going to work for this White House? Frankly, if this is if this is the atmosphere, I'm not sure. I I don't know who would want to take that job and join this uh, honest kind of viper uh, and backbiting atmosphere. It is pretty amazing how no one is safe. I mean, it sort of leads to my three words. Can I jump in with my totally segues from into what Adi is saying is my three words is what's loyalty again? Because I have been fascinated by how Jeff Sessions has been publicly humiliated all week long. And we all know that loyalty is a big deal for Donald Trump. This is his religion. This is how he judges who he's going to let close into his circle. And if there was any textbook definition of loyalty, you would think it it would have been Jeff Sessions, at least during the campaign year, right? Like, I remember when I was on the Hill, Senator Jeff Sessions of Alabama was the lone senator for months who went out on a limb and kind of took a political risk at the time to endorse Donald Trump. I mean, this was a time— He literally wore the red hat. Oh, yeah, he he literally wore the red hat before anybody else was. And this was a time on Capitol Hill when lawmakers did not even want to answer questions about Donald Trump. He was the candidate who shall not be named. And Jeff— Sessions was all the way out there for him. And so when he became attorney general, it was like, okay, that makes sense. Loyalty pays off in Trump world. But then this whole week has kind of at least thrown me for a loop because, you know, when he first recused himself from the Russian investigation, it wasn't a big deal months ago. But then I guess as the heat intensified and close family members started feeling more scrutiny, all of a sudden Trump is retroactively deciding that Jeff Sessions has not been loyal to him. Right. So it's just so a reading publicly from bashing the, him. Exactly. Although the reading from the White House, right, from Sarah Huckabee Sanders uh, at the press conference was essentially the president can disagree and, and dislike this person and not necessarily fire them. Uh, I think that's a very mature exactly. <laughs> way to talk about well, he, it. And I think if you look at this... The takeaway lesson for the week is, like, it's every man for himself. Totally. Why should I stick my neck out? Why should I ever stick my neck out for this White House? That's going to be a problem going forward. It has been so interesting, though, like, speaking about loyalty, like, looking at how the Senate reacted. So as Jeff Sessions was getting publicly humiliated, I was struck by how many senators coalesced quickly around Sessions and enthusiastically supported him. I mean, all the Republican leaders. Sessions has friends. You You seem surprised. But (laughs) as polarizing as his opinions can be in the chamber, He's still very well liked. And as, as, you know, as bitterly divided and acrimonious as the Senate can be as a chamber, it was sort of this weird contrast this week that, you know, like collegiality and personal loyalty still carry some weight in that chamber. Well, we both covered Congress. Yeah. And I always used to say the Senate is like an old folks high school. (laughs) You know, there's only a hundred of them. And if yeah. I wish, I wish sometimes they just had like lockers and backpacks. Because Seriously, it is the same <laughs> dynamics play out. Well, it's like even though there are factions and this and that, like none of these high school students like want to see prom canceled. <laughs> like they still want to preserve some of the they like nuts and bolts of traditions. Yeah, yes. totally. They believe yes, in their routines. Exactly. They believe in their traditions. 
Exactly. And, uh, yeah, they're not above throwing the class president under the bus. Um. <laughs> <laughs> to preserve homecoming court. Exactly. Yeah. So my three words uh, are about a thing that I just still can't wrap my head around. Uh, all of the hullabaloo around a potential, possible, then probably not ban on transgender people serving in the military. Mm-hmm. My words are, this feels weird. Um as we all know now, Donald Trump announced in three tweets, was it Wednesday morning, mm-hmm. uh, that he was immediately going to ban transgender people from serving in the military. He announced it via tweet, which was just out of protocol. And then once it was announced, the whole DOD basically said, we didn't know about this. <laughs> and Not only that, they said, call the White House. Yeah. They were like, yeah, mm. for comment. It was the, uh, and so, like at the same time, Trump was saying, emoji. oh, I've been talking to generals. Yeah. Like, well, which general? All the generals said no. I mean, our own Tom Bowman, who covers that department, Defense Department, he said the generals were caught, quote, flat-footed. So what I found really out of order with this, and I'm just going to say it felt out of order. There have been times when Donald Trump has tweeted about policy issues or foreign policy, uh, and he's talked about North Korea or talked about jobs, talked about this, talked about that. He's never gone this far out of his way to announce a policy that wasn't there on Twitter. You know, when he announced the travel ban, he had at least consulted with, like, White House legal counsel. Mm -hmm. He had at least consulted with a a few folks in the White House and had, like, a full memo. This seemed to have nothing, especially when you look at the numbers behind trans service in the military. Yes. So we know that there are anywhere from seven to like 15,000 trans people who serve in the Defense Department right now. Uh, the military has accommodated them greatly. And actually, the Department of Defense is the biggest employer of trans people in the country. Oh, I didn't uh, know that. We also... Yeah, we also know that trans people volunteer for military service at twice the rate of the rest of us. The ironic thing about this is that Donald Trump made the announcement via Twitter uh, on the anniversary of Truman in 1948 oh, desegregating yes. the military. Yes, he integrated it's so the ironic that this is about the military on the same day. Yes. And so to see Trump do this, it would be as if Truman desegged the military, said blacks and whites can now serve together, and then a year or two later said, psych, just kidding. Can I just say It's that big of a deal. I was I was talking about this with my boyfriend last night. He's an active Marine, and I asked him, can yeah. I talk? Can I mention that you said this? So, Walt, if you're listening, thank you for putting this thought in my head. But, you know, he said on one hand, he could see some people in the military justifying the logic behind this ban, because there's actually this really long list of what's called disqualifying medical conditions. Like you attrib- can be diabetic. Yeah. You can have a pigeon foot. Like you it's can a lot have of things. a severe stammer. It's literally hundreds of items long, this list of disqualifying medical conditions that could be reason for being prevented from joining the military. And you have to get a waiver in order to still be able to join the military. And the idea being that, you know, if you have one of these conditions, it might cost extra money or time or attention uh, to have you become a member of the military. However, this was Walt's sort of bigger point. He's like, if we're talking about transgender people who are already in the military and what Trump's tweets say is now you need to get out of the military, that is a profound breaking of faith. And that faith is so important for people who sign up for such dangerous jobs yeah. for the government because that faith means the government has my back no matter what happens. You know, if And the if military I, has already said you're fit to serve. Yes. And so it's made him and other people, you know, in the Marine Corps that he's talked to about it like, well, if the government can break faith with transgender people who thought it was fine to be transgender and also a member of the military, well maybe the government can break faith with me anytime. And that to him is just profoundly maddening and sad. And just to quickly add the other t- takeaway from this is uh, when you said it was out of order, Sam, (laughs) it's kind of in more ways than one, because the idea that uh, the Defense Department wasn't ready for this um, really reflects on the idea of like, what what is the deal with the tweets? We still don't know. Are tweets policy? Are tweets id? Are tweets uh, just his voice? Um, when do we take it seriously? And, and when is it something that really is creating policy in and of itself? We learn some limitations to that. I don't think it's actually clear what will happen, right? Because there are no policies as of yet as to how this would be implemented. Um, The second thing is that it's also not a one-off, the idea of how this administration is going about um, LGBT 
issues. And I think that people need to keep an eye on the Justice Department, people who care about these issues, to say, okay, when when they're going to court, what are they arguing, right? What side are they coming down on and and how are they talking about this? And I think you will find that um, this is actually far less surprising than you might expect. Okay, we're going to stop right there, take a quick break. Uh, We will be right back really soon with Long Distance, where we call a listener and see what's up in their neck of the woods. BRB. Support for this podcast and the following message come from WordPress.com. Every small business wants to find their customer base. Now your customers can find you too when you create a website on WordPress.com. WordPress powers 28% of all websites. They have hundreds of customized themes to get you started. Just pick a template and make it your own. Plus, 24-7 support when you need it so you can get back to business. Go to WordPress.com minute to get 15% off your website today. Support also comes from Annapurna Pictures, presenting Detroit. From the Academy Award-winning director of The Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty, Detroit brings the world a story most have never heard. Set amidst the chaotic events of the 1967 Detroit Rebellion, this harrowing new drama stars John Boyega, Anthony Mackie, and Algie Smith. Detroit, directed by Catherine Bigelow, premieres in theaters August 4th. I'm Linda Holmes. And I'm Stephen Thompson. There's more stuff to watch and read these days than any one person can get to. That's why we make Pop Culture Happy Hour. Twice a week, we sort through the nonsense, share reactions, and give you the lowdown on what's worth your precious time and what's not. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Sam here in my rental car running some errands in my hometown of San Antonio where it's currently literally 101 degrees. Anyways, chiming in right now to give you a heads up that before we get back to the show and the next part of this episode, the next segment, we will be discussing a story in which we spell and use some language that you might not want kids to hear, some some bad words, but we only spell it. Anyway, the language is an important part of the story, so we haven't bleeped it. If you want to skip that part, it's Elsa's story about the Supreme Court. It's about seven minutes long. Okay, thank you. All right, we are back in a moment. We'll go around the table and each share some stories that we found interesting this week. But first, a thing we do every week, which I love, it's called Long Distance. We call a listener from outside of D.C., out there in the country, and ask them what's happening in their neck of the woods. Today, on the line from outside of Phoenix, Arizona, we have Allison on the line. Allison, you there? Good morning. I'm here. Hey, Allison. Hey, Allison. Hi. How are you guys? We're good. That's Elsa and Audie, two friends of mine on the show today. I have to tell you guys, I'm such an NPR nerd. I'm having kind of a fangirl moment here. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Thank you for listening. So how's your Friday going so far? It's good. It's busy, busy. Um, it's back to school time for us here in Arizona, which I know is a little early for some other places in the country. But I am, um, I'm actually an instructional coach, which means I do a lot of teacher training. And today is our full district-wide professional uh, development day, which I'm in charge of for most of the day. So busy, but good. Okay. Do teachers make for good students? <laughs> it's funny you say that. Um, I was a high school teacher before I did this job, and high school teachers are typically the worst students. Um, <laughs> Why? <laughs> but no. <laughs> or how? Oh, you know, they're they're just like high school students. They sit in the back of the room. They're on their phones. They chat. <laughs> That's no, awesome. no, I'm just kidding. I'm I'm giving them a hard time. Um, you know, teachers wouldn't be teachers unless they love to learn. That's that's what this yeah. profession's all about. That's why teachers are teachers. Yeah. Now, yeah. you wrote us a letter basically saying it's a really hard time for teachers right now in Arizona yeah. because mm-hmm. teachers in your state are, I think, the lowest paid in the country or close to the lowest paid in the country. Yeah. What's that about? Well, I think it's about a lot of different things. Um, and again, you know, no one's in this for the money. I can, I can tell you that. No one chooses to, to go into education for the money. But it does make it really difficult. Um, I can't tell you how many teachers I know that have second jobs that they work on evenings huh. and weekends or, you know, side hustles where they're selling wow. LuLaRoe or something like that. So one of the things that happens is that people don't stay in this profession. So we're facing a pretty significant teacher shortage here in Arizona. In my district specifically, we still need two science teachers and a math teacher and some special ed teachers. And we have kids showing up on Wednesday. 
And wow. we don't have those positions filled, and we have no applicants. <laughs> wow. What happens yep. to all the students if there aren't enough teachers? Like, how will those classes right. even happen? No, really, what <laughs> yeah, is the plan? Substitutes, yeah. substitutes yeah, it's right? A good, it's a good question, yeah. So we have quite a few teachers who are teaching what we call a six-fifths contract, which means they don't have any prep period during the day. So they're teaching every period of the day, and that's one way wow. that we solve that problem. The oh other um, option is that we have a substitute in there. I was reading somewhere that because of that shortage, um, Arizona has kind of loosened up the requirements yeah. for what it takes to be a teacher, which means that mm-hmm. training new teachers is even harder. Yeah, so Arizona's solution to this has been basically to say that, you know, specifically for secondary education, if you have expertise in your field, you don't need to have any formal teacher education or student teaching or anything like that, which in theory sounds like an okay idea. Let's get an engineer and put him into a science classroom. Um, But what people who are in education don't understand necessarily is that being a teacher requires just as much training and education um, as any other profession. You know, it would be like taking a teacher who teaches anatomy and physiology and saying, hey, you know this anatomy. Why don't you go in and do surgery today? <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, it's really the same. <laughs> yeah. It, it sort of just creates this vicious cycle because people come into the classroom who are unprepared. They don't find success. They, you know, are stressed out and feel like they're not good at it, and they don't stay in the profession. So we have another open position. Well, you got to run and teach and, some teachers, but really quick. Oh, <laughs> go ahead. Sorry. I do. I was just going to say one last thing that the reason that I got into education is to be an amazing, inspiring teacher for the kids who need it the most, the kids who have trauma in their lives outside of school, the kids whose parents are working three jobs to support them, the kids who need an excellent teacher in every classroom, and the kids who need those teachers are the ones who are hurt the most by this. It's not about us. It's about them. Well, we're going to let you go teach some teachers, but really quickly, what are you going to do for fun this weekend? Well, my son actually started kindergarten this week, so he has had a long week. I've had a long week, so I have a feeling we're probably just going to crash and maybe hang by the pool because it's still pretty hot here in Arizona. (laughs) Nice. Well, I hope you enjoy it. Allison, thank you so much. Shout out to teachers everywhere. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. And I I love your podcast, so this has made my day. Oh, you made our day. Take care. Thank you. You guys, too. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Listeners out there, we want to hear from you for this segment. If you want us to give you a call and talk about anything going on where you live, uh, just send me a note and say what's going on. Sanders at npr.org. All right, time for one more quick break. Elsa, if you don't mind, do me a quick favor, will you? Is that cool? Yeah. Is this the envelope? Because she's got it open. I'm already yeah, opening there's a, it. <laughs> there's an envelope with some nosy. ad copy. <laughs> nosy Elsa. I didn't know this had oh. to do with the podcast. I thought I was reading somebody's trash. <laughs> Open the envelope and yeah. read that copy. We cleared it with the bosses so you can read it. It's fine. I All promise. Right. Brent will hit some ad music. It's Been a Minute with Sam Sanders is brought to you by NPR's newest podcast, It's been 45 minutes with Sam Sanders. (laughs) What? (laughs) Immediately following today's discussion with Elsa Chang and Audie Cornish, NPR's Sam Sanders will record another podcast to talk about the podcast you just heard. Was Audie Cornish a good guest? Which of Elsa Chang's observations made you go, huh? (laughs) Tune in to hear panelist Brent Bachman, who will reveal which parts got cut for time, and Sam and Brent's boss, Steve Nelson, who will express concern about the self-referential nature of this ad. Subscribe to It's Been 45 Minutes with Sam Sanders wherever you get your podcasts or on the NPR One app. Okay, that was funny. That was funny. I liked that one. Shout out to NPR's Travis Larchuk of the great podcast Ask Me Another. He writes that copy for us. He's the best. We'll take another real break in a moment. Travis, we love you. Thanks, Travis. But now it's time for part of the show when we swap some stories from the week that was. Piece we worked on or didn't work on or were obsessed with, whatevs. I got a story this week, guys. Yeah? Yeah. It's about beer. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Can I tell you all about it? Yes. So around Monday or Tuesday, I started seeing all these headlines that were just really brash and in your face. Basically, the headlines were, millennials are killing the beer industry. 
And I was just like, oh, not again. <laughs> These articles that like blame young people for the demise of everything. Yeah. So I spent a good few days just looking into it. And behind these headlines, there's actually a study from Goldman Sachs. Uh, they look at all kinds of industries. And they basically found that young people today are just consuming beer differently and less than older people. And because of that, they downgraded two big major beer companies, uh, Boston Beer Company and Constellation Brands. Uh, Boston Beer Company is most famously known for Sam Adams. Strangely enough, the two bright spots were Imports and Michelob Ultra. Who knew? <laughs> That's so specific. <laughs> I know, right? Um, Wait, and what so- are the millennials drinking then? Do we well, know? one, alcohol consumption went down during the last recession, but they thought it would come back. And even though alcohol consumption is coming back, people are shifting, especially young people. They're uh-huh. shifting from beer to wine and spirits. Oh, also, this is about rosé, isn't it? I'm super <laughs> into rosé this year. I'm such a follower, but it's great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there's some other stuff, too. So people, young people especially, they're drinking more and more outside of bars. They're drinking at home or out and about with friends or at brewery, like just outside of bars, right? Yeah. Plus you um, have Tinder, so you don't need the bar. <laughs> yeah, you can meet someone anywhere now. Exactly. And then what's the most interesting part, and this is kind of the thing that we've been seeing with millennials in all different kinds of industries, there's what they call a channel shift in beers. Now you have to compete with brew pubs and microbreweries and tap rooms in the app that brings beer to your house, right? And it's Wait, the same thing that we've what? There's an app that does that? Oh, yeah. Get what? your life, Adi. Oh, There's gosh. an app that delivers alcohol I am not to your living house. my best life. <laughs> what does the app do? I like that you've told me all this data, and I'm like, but wait. <laughs> <laughs> and so what I found with this story is that millennial consumption habits, industry by industry, are changing the economy in these disruption big ways. Like we've seen Disruption. We've seen it with driving and the rise of Uber. We've seen it with housing and the rise of Airbnb. We see it now with food and the rise of Blue Apron or whatever. Like, millennials are consuming differently and all throughout every industry. And instead of these old players saying, how do we keep up? We get articles that blame young people for, quote unquote, killing industries. And it's like, it's not their fault. Say golf, it. Yeah, golf clap. I feel like there's some <laughs> meme of Orson Welles clapping or something. <laughs> we exactly. should be I, I, here. I have never learned how to drink beer. Like, I, it, like when I first started learning how to drink alcohol, I went from wine coolers to wine. And so, like, sounds about right. Yeah. How old are you? <laughs> Forty-one. It's a very uh, late in Gen X, millennial adjacent. So I don't know. I mean, yeah, that's a challenge to figure out how to market to people who just, if they're already into wine, I don't know. It's a hard turn. Also, to make. Sam, I should say that you should not confuse uh, corporate America and how it deals with this stuff with like think piece writing. Um, it's really (laughs) the writing that happens around this sometimes that always begins. It used to be, right? Uh Like, boomers did this. Right. And and that was the standard. And now the standards are changing for whatever reason. And there are a lot of people befuddled about the way we came out of this recession and the economy Uh has been very complex. You know, like, wages are down, even though unemployment is down. And there are some things that people took for granted in terms of how the economy behaves and how we all behave in it that are really being shaken up. Um, So it's not just millennials. I think there's other, other factors going on. There'll be a beer resurgence. Yeah. Just wait till the next generation. Yeah, yeah. And we're not, not, they're not still making the money industry. hand over fist. I'm sure when we look at the <laughs> oh, data, yeah. right, like yeah. these microbreweries yeah. have taken a cut, but, you you know, the cores and the Michelobes, are, they're doing just fine. So that's my story. I'm sticking to it. Beer. It's what's happening. <laughs> or not, actually. <laughs> or not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Elsa, I yes. brought you on this week specifically for a story of yours I heard on the air that I want you to unpack because I just find it so fascinating. So tell us your story. Yes. So let me just catch everybody up. There was a Supreme Court decision in June uh, about trademarks. And basically the rule now because of the Supreme Court decision is that the U.S. government can no longer ban a, a trademark registration on the grounds that that trademark is disparaging. So that case involved this Asian-American rock band called The Slants, and they wanted to register their name. The U.S. 
Patent and Trademark Office said, no, slants is disparaging to Asian Americans, so you cannot register that. The but they rock- were like, we're Asian American. Yeah, we're trying to reclaim the word slants in this affirming, positive way. And so they took their case all the way up to the Supreme Court saying that this was a violation of their free speech rights. The court agreed with them. And so now the government is no longer in the business of deciding what is disparaging, what is not, and banning only the disparaging trademarks. Um, so the aftermath, there was this sort of this big question looming. Uh, a lot of people out there thought, oh, no, you know, is this going to open the door to really offensive, hateful, racist, homophobic, misogynist, you name it, trademark registrations out there? Are we going to see the floodgates open? And so I did this story on what are the trademark registration applications we are seeing now after the Supreme Court decision uh, coming down the pipeline. And uh, I will say that there were several applications to register N-I-G-G-A as a trademark. So I decided, huh. okay, what's going who's on? Who's doing this? Yeah, who's doing this? Uh, there were a few actually filed the very day that the Supreme Court handed down its decision. Why am I not surprised? Right. So you know people were like <laughs> waiting, like poised to just do this. And, and, and like everybody was in a race to own this mark, N-I-G-G-A. So uh, two of the applications filed the same day as the Supreme Court decision were filed by one man out of like three. So I thought, OK, what's this guy's deal? Um, he's a guy named Curtis Bordenave. He lives in Mississippi. And he actually wanted the mark because he plans on on creating a line of apparel with the NIGGA brand, but emblazoned <laughs> on the front of the T-shirts of, of, the, of these apparel, these pieces of clothing that he, he wants to produce are going to be themes about brotherhood and unity, you know, positive things. It's, it's sort of his way of reclaiming NIGGA. Is he, he is African-American. And, okay. um, you know, it was so interesting because he was like, I'm really glad that I moved in so quickly because I noticed there was this other company that wanted to register the same mark. So this first guy I talked to, Curtis Bordenave, was like, I wonder what that company's intent is. And it turned out they had very similar intent. They, you know, they wanted to not only reclaim NIGDA, but they also wanted to create swastika products and totally overprice them. The idea being that, you know, they'll be oh. so expensive. Uh, no a lot of racists it. out there would not want to spend so much money buying these products. It's just really interesting because the floodgates that people were so afraid of opening has actually created this interesting, well-intentioned race against racists. You know, people who want to reclaim words oh, that Elsa, could be... Oh, sweet Elsa, give it time. <laughs> give it time. Oh, I'm sure... It's been a week. I didn't get to contact everybody with yeah. questionable trademark this, applications. This is a time-will-tell situation if I've ever yeah. heard it. Because, so, you know, so, reclamation and good cheer is good in classrooms and, like, liberal happy talk. It's another thing when this stuff goes down, the reality of it goes down. Right. And uh, a year from now, I'll be interested oh, in yeah, hearing absolutely. what happened. Yeah. So is this, like, the fact that there is now this cottage industry of people trying to buy up trademarks for the N-word and swastikas, that seems like a glitch in the matrix. It seems like our system wasn't meant to be used in this way, right? It's weird. Well, you know, if you look at it more broadly, like, why was the government even trying to figure out, you know, for years, since 1946, the government was making these really nuanced, sensitive cultural decisions about language and trying to figure out how to keep it clean in the trademark registration world. And, you know, over the decades, it just, like, got really inconsistent because, as you can imagine, the porn industry has been able to register a bunch of pretty vulgar, some would argue quite misogynistic and offensive <laughs> But words also language out there. changes. And language changes, right. for instance. And, yeah, intent like, and meaning. You know, there was a time where gay and queer, if those words ended up in a trademark registration, it would be less likely to be uh, approved by the trademark office. But then as the gay and queer community reclaimed those words, those words became more easily registered yeah. as trademarks. Dykes on Bikes, this, you know, um, this motorcycle gang of lesbians who wanted to register uh, their name, they were not approved. You're ago. So so language changes. And so the question is, should the U.S. government be in the business of deciding what words are okay and what words are not? Yeah. Now, you have a really great Planet Money episode all about this. Yes. Yes. So we have... What's it called? um, So the first one is... God, what do we call it? I think we called it unspeakable. <laughs> you should know that. Yeah. 
Because <laughs> there's the first episode about this case aired in end of May. I think it was Unspeakable Trademark. And then we have another one, sort of an update, that's coming out today, Friday. Okay. I don't know what we named it yet, though. It's named something. It's, it's not like, named the N word. Guarantee you that. Episode from today. <laughs> What's today? July. 28th. We need 28th. to work on your branding strategy. <laughs> <laughs> Just going to put that out there. <laughs> Clearly, don't make me a trademark lawyer. Adi, <laughs> yes. former congressional reporter, yeah. I think we're going to make your story be probably the story of the week. Uh, maverick of all mavericks, John McCain hopping up in your Senate making waves. That's true. John McCain came back from his surgery and brain cancer diagnosis and swaggered on into... Uh, the Senate chamber to cast a no vote on the so-called skinny repeal, the Senate's Which, last I'm sorry, ditch just... effort <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to pass we just some by. kind of health care bill. Skinny repeal is the worst. Skinny repeal sounds like a really bad fad diet <laughs> or like a really bad indie band. From yeah, it was a it was a speaking of bad branding. Um, it was a rough <laughs> bit of branding. And you actually had McCain and, and Lindsey Graham uh, and some other lawmakers who got together in a press conference and said, we'll only pass this if we're sure it won't pass when it gets to the House. That was the weirdest <laughs> so thing. They basically said, we'll only vote for this law if we're sure it won't become law. Right, exactly. right. So think I have back, never seen that happen in the four years. Exactly. Think back to your Schoolhouse Rocks version of how, you know, a bill becomes a law. The Senate passes something. The House passes something. They get together in a room make sure that they're all on the same page and pass a final bill, and that goes to the president. And essentially what the Senate was saying, <laughs> these, these senators were like, nobody wants this Frankenstein, so let's hope <laughs> yeah. it never truly becomes human. Oh, my goodness. Um, and that was really weird. But I'm going to challenge you, Sam. I don't think the story is about John McCain, although he did in the end make the story about himself. Um, he knows how to do that very well. He knows well. how to do that. He was like, wait and see, you know? I was like, oi, okay, <laughs> well, And then it was we so it. weird because we there's, like, watching Twitter last night when everyone's trying to read everyone's body language. Yes. Like, oh, Chuck Schumer's smiling. John McCain just breathed heavily. Lisa Murkowski is twerking over there. Like, it I was know. So well, listen, as, as an ex-congressional reporter, you, you're there day in, day out. The high school analogy I made earlier is really apt. And remember, there were a lot of days in high school where you were bored Okay, you were looking at the clock because everyone was acting out in the same ways they always do. And so for someone to inject any kind of drama in this, um, it was different. It it was different. And last night there was an audible gasp um, when he did cast his vote. But I'm going to say the thing I can't let go is what I'll call the ballad of Alaska and Lisa Murkowski, because Uh. this woman (laughs) has fascinated me all week. You know, Trump tweeted about her. And then later, the interior secretary, Ryan Zinke, actually called her and the other Republican senator to say, hey, listen, (laughs) like, you know, and and we should know Alaska gets like a third of its uh, the Alaskan economy depends in one way or another on federal funding. So she gets this call from the interior secretary. But here's where I am fascinated, because these are moments where I'm like, holds up this White House don't know who it's messing with. Number one. She's very popular. She's very popular. Very popular. Murkowski, when I was covering the Senate, battled back from being primaried and won as a write-in. Let me repeat. Her last name is Murkowski, (laughs) which while is a family (laughs) dynasty political name in Alaska, not that easy to spell. And she still won. So the Republicans (laughs) turn their back on her. So she comes back and she is strutting into the Senate like Mr. Peanut. And she don't care. (laughs) Lisa Murkowski don't care what you want, okay? Because she's now not up for re-election until 2022. And so the the legislative laws of being a senator and politics still apply. And it still applies even in the Trump era. Thou shall not threaten someone who's not up for re-election. Right. (laughs) You know, and when people start... He's not up either. Yeah, yeah, people don't... If people don't care, like, you know, I think John McCain is a good example. John McCain came back and let's face it, he's thinking of his legacy and he cast a vote with that in mind. Yeah. Okay, time for one more quick break. When we come back, we'll play Who Said That? And we'll hear the best things that happened to our listeners all week. 
Support for this podcast and the following message come from ZipRecruiter. If you're looking for top talent, with ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Let ZipRecruiter's powerful technology match your job to the right candidates and use their simple dashboard to find the right hire. That's why 80% of jobs on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just one day. Try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash minute. Support also comes from Discover Card, who alerts you if they find your social security number on any one of thousands of risky websites. Discover believes there are some things that you just need to know. It's just another way Discover looks out for you, not just your account. And best of all, social security alerts are free for Discover Card members. All you have to do is sign up online. Learn more at discover.com slash free alerts. Limitations apply. All right, we are back. Now it's time for a game that we call Who Said That? I will share a quote from the week, and you guys have to guess who said that. We'll do three today. All right? All right. Let's Here's do it. Here's the first one. Quote, our legal team is fighting hard for us, but having been cut off from all revenue, we are facing the prospect of having no financial means to continue operating the site. Who said that? Mm. Is this on, the Snopes y'all. people? It is. Yay. You got it. Nice. So this was a message from the editorial staff of Snopes.com. It's uh, thought to be the first real fact-checking website on the Internet. began in the 90s as a small website. It was built by the husband and wife team of David and Barbara Mickelson. Basically, you went to Snopes to disprove your cousin's weird conspiracy theories. <laughs> but now they're about to go out of business because they're in a fight with a vendor and there's some legal and financial limbo. They had an online fundraiser this week. They raised about half a million dollars very quickly. But it's not yet clear if Snopes will make it. But I find it so fascinating to see how much the culture of Snopes and fact-checking yeah, has become pervasive across true. all internet. I mean, NPR does a bunch of it now. The Washington mm-hmm. Post does. They really created the fact-checking culture. They did. And also, as the internet ages, you're going to see companies live and die, R.I.P. Gawker. So um, yeah. uh, who knows what's going to happen. It's the circle but, of life. Yeah, this is the <laughs> circle of life. <laughs> all right. Next quote. Did you see me at Comic-Con? Who said that? <laughs> Lupita Nyong'o. Yeah. I'm on my Twitter deck. <laughs> I, can I explain so, this? So she was yeah, dressed it, as a pink it. Power Ranger. Oh, we got And she with was an there mask and with a mask and sunglasses. And she was uh, she did this like hilarious like dancing and running around through the hall. She's there promoting obviously Black Panther, which is probably going to be one of the biggest movies of the year next year and she just looked like such a little sweetheart she was Aww. having such a good time so this was just a, a promotional thing she doesn't have like a inner geek that she does apparently because <laughs> the pink power ranger was a deep cut to yeah. me and she seemed to enjoy being as you know one may say incognito. am i allowed to say oh, that i like it, you can say it. I like and it. The, videos, the video's so cute she's just walking around comic-con no one knows who she is, but she starts dancing and everyone just starts dancing with her because they're like, oh, it's a pink Power Ranger dancing. Anyway, last quote. Ready? All right. Please do not. Oh, also, Audi 2, Elsa, fix your life. What? I what mean, are you doing I rubbing it in? Knew this was going to happen. Oh, God. But I wanted to give you a chance. Public humiliation. <laughs> I feel you, Jeff Sessions. <laughs> oh, oh, You're the Jeff Sessions of this soon. podcast. <laughs> Beleaguered Elsa Chang. Beleaguered. Weak Elsa Chang. (laughs) All right, last quote. Please do not wear shorts, large logos, flip-flops, tank tops, crop tops, baseball hats, solid white or red clothing. Who said that? Should I just tell you? Okay. Yeah, tell us. Okay, this was uh, in a press release for a free Arcade Fire concert. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, so... What's up with the dress code? Right? So here's the backstory. Arcade Fire has a new album that came out actually today. And they had a free concert to celebrate the new album release. And in advance of the free show, the following dress code was announced. They said it's, quote, hip and trendy as if you are going to a concert or night out with friends. So once these guidelines about dress code came out, everyone was like, Arcade Fire, what in the world? That's awful. Why would you do that? But Arcade Fire wrote back and said, hey, that wasn't us. It must be Apple who's sponsoring this concert. And then Arcade Fire went back and put out their own statement on Twitter. And they said, 
wear whatever you want to the show. Is it supposed to be meta irony or? I just, I don't, I just find it really ironic that like a band like Arcade Fire that used to be golden children of like the indie aesthetic is now like having Apple run their stuff. Like they've become so corporatized. Yeah. Well, this album actually is supposed to be some kind of meta commentary on that, on on the writing around music and around the commercialization of music. So that's why I asked that question is like, I don't know what's Uh, real and what's them jokingly commentating on what are now norms when it comes to breaking an album. Yeah. But also it's so much work. Like, just put out your music. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Um, Audie, you won. Like, Aww. no, you creamed me. No, I mean, I knew that would happen. <laughs> I, I just, I was feeling bad for you. That's all. I was being I know, nice. You're yeah. super preggers right now. Yeah. It's going easy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, can you say that yet? Uh, yeah, you sure. Yet? Uh, I have superpowers uh, because I'm pregnant. <laughs> and I know more along, things than everyone else. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm too far, I would say. Far, far enough okay. to complain publicly. <laughs> About whether or not someone's giving me a train on the metro. I did that this week. You gave someone the evil eye. I'm sorry, someone giving me a seat on the metro. Uh And uh, yeah, yeah, I was there grumbling, like, why can't they tell? (laughs) Then then I sort of felt like, well, maybe I'm happy they can't tell. And my feet were like, be quiet. We need a seat. (laughs) I love it. All right, guys, we're almost done, I promise. But before we go, I got to plug Tuesday's episode. Every Tuesday on the show, we bring you a deep dive when I catch up with one person or tackle one topic. And next week on the show, it's going to be one you don't want to miss, I promise. We have actor Lakeith Stanfield. He's having a huge year. You know who you know who he is. He plays Darius on Atlanta, a great show. He played Snoop in the movie Straight Out of Compton. He was a guy who got kidnapped in the opening scene of Get Out, one of my favorite films from this year. <laughs> he also at that party scene shouts out the the oh, like title line, guy. Get Out. Yeah. He's having a very big year. Wow. He's doing it big. You're catching up at the fun. right time. Yeah, yeah. We talked for a bit about his career, how black men are portrayed in film, what it was like to work on Get Out, all kinds of stuff. It was a really fun chat. Check your feed for it Tuesday morning. I promise you'll like it. One more plug. I'm going to be on NPR's Weekend Edition soon. That's a Woo! radio show. <laughs> I've heard of it. You heard of it? Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. radio, you call it. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Oh, yeah. They're doing a series called Movies You Missed, where they basically ask people to go see and review classic movies they've never seen. Oh, I love that So I'm going to be idea. talking about, right? I'm yeah. going to talk about Casablanca soon because I've never seen that movie. Huh. But I will see it and talk about it. Anyways, the show wants you to share your reviews of any movies that you might have missed. You can do it on Twitter in a single tweet. If you can do that, at me or at Weekend Edition, and they might put your review on the radio. Okay. With that, each week I ask listeners to send us a recording of their own voice sharing the best thing that happened to them all week. I encourage them to brag. Brent takes all of them and makes a little montage for us. I love this. roll the tape. Hey, Sam, this is Lonnie, and I'm with my almost 10-year-old daughter, Mary Grace. Hey, Sam. So the best thing that happened to us this week is... I went to camp for the very first time. And not only did Mary Grace go to summer camp, but it was actually the camp that I used to go to when I was a kid, which as a dad just gives me all the feels. (laughs) It was pretty awesome. Yeah. All right, man, have a great week, and thanks for the show. Okay, bye. Thank you. Hey, Sam, this is Katie from Fort Thomas, Kentucky. The best part about my week was taking my 59-year-old mom, who was diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's last year, to a Huey Lewis concert. Oh, that's awesome. Such a blessing to be able to enjoy her while we can. Hey, Sam, Tyler here. My best thing that happened this week was watching my twin six-year-old boys take first and third in their city dive competition. My dog, who has had a paw injury, has stopped limping. Yay! My son, Max, turned two years old. My six friends and I went on our 27th annual Girls Weekend. Nice. I'm moving in with my girlfriend of two years, and I'm just so excited to be starting to build our home together. Nice. I got to host my little sister's baby shower, and I'm just so excited to welcome my first nephew in September. Hey, Sam. Hey, Brent. Ford from Clearwater, Florida. So one of my goals in retirement was to learn how to sail. Seven months in, and I successfully completed my sailing class this past weekend. Took my first solo sail today. Also got excused from jury duty tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's going to be a great 
cocktail hour this evening. Living That's here, to be thankful your for. best life. Hey Sam, this is Jonathan, and the best thing that happened to me this week was that my husband Christopher and I celebrated our fifth wedding anniversary Aww. on the same day that my parents celebrated their 40th anniversary awesome. and the same day that my grandparents celebrated their 70th anniversary. Whoa, oh, I wonder if they planned it. goals. <laughs> That's amazing. Hi, Sam. This is Lauren. I just wanted to call and tell you about the best thing that happened to me this week. Um, today, I actually just took the GRE, and I did really, really well on Woo! it. Which means that I get to go to grad school. Yeah. Congratulations. Um, um, I also called my dad after I took the test, and today's actually his birthday. And so when I told him that I got really good scores, he just started crying and said that it, this is the best birthday gift he could have asked for and oh. that he knew I could do it. Oh. Um, I can't tell you how much work I've put into this, and I just want to thank you for listening. Um, I'm just over the moon happy right now. I hope you have an amazing rest of your week and a great weekend. Oh, my goodness. Get it, girl. Thanks a lot. Love the show. Take care. Bye. That's just beautiful. That I, is I, beautiful. I can't handle that. My my hormones can't handle that right now. <laughs> that's going to be your kid one day. daughter love. Saying that he or she kicked yeah. butt on the GRE. <sighs> Thanks to Lonnie and Mary Grace, Katie, Tyler, Meg, Ryan, two different people, not Meg Ryan, but also thank you, Meg Ryan, for your canon. Uh, also, thanks to Karen, Ariel, Caitlin, Ford. Enjoy that cocktail hour and be careful on the boat. Jonathan, happy anniversary. Although it sounded as if you were recording yourself in your car while driving, that's a no-no. Won't hold it against you, Jonathan. And shout out finally to Lauren for nailing the GRE. Proud of you. Um, we get so many of these great messages. It's really hard to put them all in the show, but we hear them all. So until we can find a way to get them all out there to you, thank you for sharing and keep sharing them with us. We love to hear them and it just makes our week. If you want to share your best thing all week, you can do so at any time throughout the week. Just record your own voice and email the file to samsanders at npr.org. Mama, we made it. Cue Missy. We're done. Audie Elsa. Thank you, guys. Thank you. That was awesome. Two former congressional reporters made for a really smart discussion. Live to tell the tale. <laughs> yes, yes. So, listeners, Audie is on your radio every afternoon on a little bitty show called All Things Considered from NPR. And next week, Elsa Chang will be on your radio every morning hosting NPR's Morning Edition. So tune in. All right, It's Been a Minute was edited this week by Jeff Rogers and Steve Nelson. It was produced by my friend and yours, Brent Bachman. Okay, refresh your feed Tuesday morning for Lakeith Stanfield. Until then, let Missy Elliott be your spirit guide. Thanks for listening. I'm Sam Sanders. Talk soon.